Welcome back to the third episode of the Dark Matter podcast, where we discuss everything space with experts and researchers from all over the world. In this episode, we're going to cover quite a few topics. Climate science, security and conflict in space, virtual reality, and setups for analog missions. If you don't really know what any of these words mean, neither do I, and that's why I'm really thrilled to welcome somebody who does. Our guest for today's episode is Sabail Shawa. She's joining us from Italy, where she works on her PhD. Welcome to the podcast, Saba. How are you today? Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, so you've received a couple of awards recently. In 2021, you were the recipient of the Women in Airspace Young Professional Award. And then last year in 2022, you received the Space Generation Leadership Award. But I'm interested to rewind a little bit to the beginning of your career, um, all the way back to your studies, actually. You studied mechanical engineering for your bachelor's, and then you pursued a master's in space studies at the International Space University. Can you tell me a bit about that? What does a master's in space studies look like? What kind of classes do you take? Yeah, of course. So the master's in space studies at ISU is actually an interdisciplinary master's degree. Uh, so as you said, my background was technical and engineering. I worked on robotics. And I really just wanted to learn more about the space industry in general. Uh, so at the time, I think it was the only interdisciplinary degree. Um, there's a few more popping up now in the space industry. But basically what that means is there is the science and engineering aspect, but there's also the law and policy aspect, uh, business development, human performance in space, humanities. So you touch a bit on all of these different uh, elements of the space industry. So you kind of get a more comprehensive view of what it means to be part of the space industry. Uh, it was a one-year master's. Uh, actually, that's when COVID happened. So I, I graduated uh, a bit later, but still within the year. Uh, and part of that was doing um, my master's thesis and then also doing an internship at the European Space Agency where I worked at the Clean Space Office on the environmental impacts of space. So I really got to work a bit on everything during this master's, which was great. Uh, that's really exciting. Actually, you're right. There are more and more programs like this. I was chatting with somebody from uh, Leuven University. They yeah. also have a program that, from what you're saying, sounds quite a bit, quite a bit similar. Um, and now, as I mentioned, you're working on your PhD in sustainable development and climate change. And we'll definitely come back to that later because I think the, the topic, the subject of your research is really interesting. It, it combines space and climate science in such a clever and, and innovative way as far as I, as far as I know. Uh, but before we talk about this, um, I'd like to talk about the other activities you have also aside to it. So I think it was two years ago, you joined an organization called the Space Generation Advisory Council. You hold different uh, positions there, different responsibilities, and notably you're the point of contact for Jordan. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about this space NGO, I want to call it? How, mm -hmm. how has it enabled you to discuss the topics you care about, such as ethics, human rights, and climate in the context of space? Yeah, so I actually joined the SJC, I would say about three years ago now. I first joined during, uh, while I was doing my master's. Um, it's so a space NGO basically working as it's a permanent observer to the UN Committee uh, for the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. And it was actually um, created to represent the younger generation or the space generation in space. So I first joined as the national point of contact for Jordan, as you said, as a way to get involved uh, in the space industry, but also to bring space to Jordan. 
Um, I soon joined other uh, groups in the SJC. So the way it's structured is that there's this international network of regional coordinators, national points of contact representing different countries and regions. But then there's also specific project groups. Um, so the first project group that I joined was the Ethics and Human Rights Group. And uh, that group really taught me a lot about ethics in space, uh, looking at how colonialism is brought into space, how it continues to propagate in space exploration. Um, and I really enjoyed the discussions that we had uh, in that group. And I actually, a year into it, became one of the co-leads for this group. And at the same time, they were starting up a, a policy and advocacy platform in the SJC. So the first task of this uh, platform was essentially to create the Space for Climate Action policy of the Space Generation Advisory Council. Um, and so I was the co-lead for the Space for Climate Action group. We worked last year on developing a comprehensive report. So all of the ways that space links to climate action, ways that it can help, but also what we can do better in terms of the environmental impact of space activities. Um, and that was adopted as the official policy position of the SJC, which I also presented to the UN uh, at the end of last year. So I would say this is really, as a volunteer uh, position and organization, it has still given me a lot of access to the space industry, allowed me to grow my network and the opportunities that I have. Wow, that's really, that's really interesting. Um, there's two things you said that I, I really want to come back to. One of them is say you, you want to you wanted to bring space to Jordan. Um, what is the situation in Jordan? How, how developed is the space industry in Jordan? So you could pretty much say it's non-existent, uh, which is why I started the Jordan Space Research Initiative uh, about two years ago now. Uh, so this was actually the focus of my master's thesis at the International Space University because there's there has been attempts to start things related to space in Jordan, but they get quickly shut down, um, largely because the public does not see the need for space or why would we would be wasting financial resources, natural resources that there's it's such a far fetched thing. It doesn't impact us. And so our goal uh, with the Jordan Space Research Initiative is to bridge sustainable development with space exploration. So as I said, this was the focus of my master's degree was the implementation of the UN Space 2030 agenda uh, in Jordan specifically. And this agenda essentially outlines how how can space be used for sustainable development or social development. So I identified the top priority SDGs or sustainable development goals for Jordan. So essentially challenges that we need to address, uh, but also things that we strengths of the industry there. So for example, there's a lot of companies working on renewable energy, um, but they haven't tapped into the space market. Uh, so our goal right now is we're, we're essentially representing Jordan at the international scale, um, building strategic partnerships with space industry, with NGOs, um, and trying to get the Jordanian government and the public to really see space as a viable option uh, for Jordan to get involved. Yeah, so, so you mentioned the JSRI, the Jordan Space Research Initiative. So that's something you founded, right? What, what was the motivation for, for creating this organization? So you, you mentioned expanding the, 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 the space industry in Jordan, but what do you hope to achieve specifically? Yeah, so um, I think really the reason I founded JSRI, so JSRI also, it's actually an Arabic word, JSRI means my bridge. Um, and so the aim was to be a bridge for Jordanians to get involved in space and also, you know, as I said, bridge 
encouraging sustainability with space exploration. Um, the main personal motivation I would say is that when I was still living in the Middle East, when I was studying in Jordan, I had no opportunities to get involved in the space industry. It really was not accessible. Um, it wasn't until I immigrated to Canada that I started getting involved in the space industry. But even then, it wasn't until I got my Canadian citizenship that I was able to work you know, at ESA or to have these opportunities. And obviously, I'm not the first or the last Jordanian to be interested in space. Um, and I wanted to be able to provide these opportunities for people in Jordan. So our goals at GISTI are not just um, working on analog research. As you mentioned, we want to do space R&D, but also we want to have community and stakeholder engagement to do outreach. So we've done that. Um, over the past two years, we've been hosting space design competitions for students, for young professionals, and, and it's it's already changing the trajectory of people's lives, getting them, you know, that foot in the door, being able to say, I worked on a space project and now I have access to more opportunities. So that's a huge part of, of our goals and my personal goals as well. Um, and I, I found that even when I was working with the SJAC or the Moon Village Association in a voluntary capacity representing Jordan, you're quite limited in really what you can do and how many people you can reach. Uh, and so I wanted to found this organization to really represent Jordan as its own entity. So a lot of the activities we do are related to the NGOs that I'm involved in, but then there are also local things that we're doing, engaging with universities, with research centers in Jordan to show them that you know, we can do this. We are a completely volunteer organization. Um, and yet still like look at the strides that we're taking. So imagine if we actually had government support, if we had people backing us in the country as well. Yeah, so that, that's still not the case then. You don't really get any funding. How, how does that work? How do you sustain your activities? So we get funding for specific activities. So the organization as a whole right now is not funded. We've, we've gotten a few grants um, that we're basically using to legally register the organization to allow us to expand more into business activities, for example. Um, but most of our funding has come um, from in-kind sponsors uh, for specific activities. So, for example, our competitions. Uh, last year, we worked with a university based in Jordan. They actually funded the, the prizes, um, building the prototypes. They provided the venue and so on. And so most of the activities on our end were actually the organization, the outreach, uh, making sure that we had a specific plan for each of the competitions, uh, the judging, recruiting people. Uh, so a lot of it, as I said, is a volunteer effort. But we do, of course, have funding from um, our partners and sponsors based on the activity that we're doing at the time. And, and you mentioned analog research. Can you maybe explain uh, what that means for people who don't know? Sure. So uh, analog research, I would say, is kind of a, a very specific area of research in the space industry. Basically, what it means is simulations of space. So um, there are a lot of analog facilities around the world. They're typically in harsh environments like on a volcano, in a desert, in Antarctica, um, because these environments allow us to simulate the space missions that we're going to go on, whether it's to the moon or Mars, what are the habitats that we're going to live in, um, having you know a closed loop system, the type of technologies that you use. And then also a huge part of that is the uh, crew dynamics and the psychological 
some analogs actually are not um, dependent on the environment that they're in. They're completely isolated. Uh, for example, there's one in Poland that's built in an old bunker. Um, and so people live in these analogs for for weeks, for months. Um, I think recently I saw there's going to be one for up to a year that NASA is funding. And what they do is they isolate these people. They have to rely on the technology that's there, the habitat, and also to work with each other. Um, so there's a lot of research that goes into this in order to prepare us for uh, lunar exploration, for getting to Mars and so on. And is it still the stage of proof of concept, um, the, the analog mission you're working on, or, or has it gone in further? Yes, yeah, so this year we're doing what we're calling a proof of concept mission, right. um, because our goal is actually to build an analog research facility, a new habitat in the Jordanian desert of Wadi Rum. Um, I'm sure you've seen it. A lot of movies are filmed there. It's really often compared to Mars. Um, and so we wanted to go past this, you know, visual aspect. We have a very unique environment where we can test our technologies, where we can have these simulated missions and get Jordan involved in space. Um, but at the same time, building a facility, of course, is very expensive. It's going to take time to plan it out, to get the funding, the partners, the government approvals. So this year, what we're doing is we're using the existing infrastructure in Wadidam. Um, there's a lot of tourist campsites that essentially have the domes and bubbles. They call them like the Mars bubbles. Um, so we want to rent out a site, use that as our analog habitat, um, and then propose start doing some of the research that we're proposing. Uh, so we actually have seven research areas that we selected, as I said, based on the sustainable development goals, but also things that contribute to space exploration. And some of them don't require a new habitat to be tested. Uh, like women's health is one of the areas we're looking at using robotics, um, wearables, biomedical aspects. So all of these things are going to be incorporated into our mission. And we're using it as a platform to build new partnerships locally and internationally to also start showing that you know we're we're doing this in jordan we've already started we need more support to actually achieve the vision that we have for the future that's really inspiring i think for me and for a lot of people when you think about space you know you think of this really massive budgets i saw the, uh, mm -hmm. the other day uh just for the uh, space military for the us i think it's 30 billion they they have as a budget and and you know, and then you talk about this these kind of initiatives where it's very grassroots, and you say, you know what, we don't have that here, and I think it's a shame because people would be interested, and you you create from scratch. Last week, I was talking to a young woman called Kizibek from uh, Kyrgyzstan, who's working on her her dream is to send the first satellite of her country. She also created that organization with other young women she works with, and it's it's uh, I think it gives her a really different perspective on space, which we perhaps don't hear enough about. So I'm I'm really. It's very inspiring what you're talking about. Um, and not, not something else I wanted to talk about, which is maybe a bit more um, of a cold topic, uh, security, security in space. Uh, I've heard you talk about dual use um, in, in relation to the space industry. What, what does that mean? What, what does that mean to you as well? Um, how does that impact perhaps the decisions you take for your career development? Can you tell me about yeah, absolutely. This is one of my, my favorite topics <laughs> to talk about, especially because it's not discussed very often in the space industry. Um, but, you know, as you were just mentioning, there's a huge uh, budget or funding that comes from military to invest in space. And so a lot of our space technologies are driven by military needs or used for military purposes. Um, that's essentially what dual use means is that 
the technology developed for space exploration can also be used for military or defense applications. Um, for me personally, I'm that doesn't align with my values of why I'm interested in space or, you know, life in, in general. Um, as a Palestinian, especially, I see these defense and security discussions come up a lot when it comes to Israel and their use of, you know, space assets. Um, that was part of the reason I wasn't, um, I didn't continue with my first job in the space industry that really took me a long time to actually, you know, break into the industry. But um, I was working on satellites and I found that a lot of the time the applications that we're using space technologies for, um, people never stop to question what it means that it's for defense or security because security may seem objective, but it really is subjective based on who you're providing these capabilities to. Um, so if you're talking about a security satellite that's being used by the Israeli military to provide security to them, that's also oppressing Palestinians. Um, so security is really subjective based on how you're defining it, how you're looking at it, from what angle. Um, and I found that people really tend to stay away from this discussion in the space industry, largely because of the funding issue um, and this idea of dual use. Um, and so for me, it's all about reframing how we think about dual use, because what we're doing uh, at GISTI in Jordan is essentially dual use applications, right? We're developing them for space, but they're also to be used on Earth for sustainability. So you can think of dual use as this needs to be used for destruction and military activities and, and oppression, or you can look at it as, well, dual use can also mean we're using it for the benefit of humankind as a whole. We're using it for sustainable development, for social development. Uh, so this is something that I think we really need to discuss more in the space industry because when you first bring it up, people think that means, oh, we should stop all military activities, then this is not realistic. Of course not. No one's saying that. But to have an industry that's so tightly linked, so coupled, so it's even our industry is called defense and space. Um, when I'm looking for a job in the space industry, I always get military jobs. I get things about weaponization and warfare. Um, this definitely does not align with my, my personal values or career goals. Um, and at the same time, another aspect that people don't often consider is that this places a lot of limitations on who has access to the space industry, um, especially when you look at ITAR activities in the US, you know, they have specific countries that can get access to just a space exploration job because it's dual use, because it could be used for military activities. Um, so this is really something that we need to to talk more about and to think about in the space industry. How can we change this? Um, we can start reframing it as, well, military and defense applications are just that. They're an application of space technology. The same way that, you know, you have Earth observation satellites, they sell their data for different applications. So we can think of it more as a client of the space industry than assuming that anything I work on in space, any company in space has to be defense and space. No, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, it actually makes me think of um, a talk I went to uh, last week. There was a researcher who was invited to talk about his work, and he focuses on developing um, sort of permanent um, agriculture setups to, to go to space. So in a way that 
within the rockets and in throughout the journey you would be able to produce your own food and make it a hundred percent of a cycle you know a, a self-sufficient cycle and i think that's that's one of the example of what um, alternative dual use could be you know because not mm -hmm. only would that be useful in space but you could also use those uh, findings and uh, uh, discoveries you make and use it on earth um, so that that would be a, perhaps a way to to challenge that sort of space military uh, dual use you're talking about. But um, yeah, a, a lot to think about. You're right. It's about paradigms as well. What what where do we put the money? Where do we put the focus on the research? Um, and the the decision you took for your PhD is quite different because um, you work on the overview effect. What um, mm -hmm. what what does that mean? Maybe let's start there. What is the overview effect? Sure. So I think um, this also kind of relates back to, you know, how I felt about the space industry when I was working in a technical role. Um, my goal was always to work on space robotics, like through my undergrad, oh, really? through my master's, um, because my undergraduate experience was all in robotics and mechatronics. And then the more I started learning about space and all these issues with geopolitics, with the applications, I was at the same time learning about sustainability and environmental impacts and the overview effect. Uh, and so the overview effect is basically, it's a term that was coined by a space philosopher, Frank White, uh, and it describes the experience that astronauts have when they see the earth from space, um, specifically astronauts that went to the moon on the Apollo missions, uh, they experienced this when they saw the earth rise uh, from the moon. And what it does is that it shifts their perspective uh, they often say it shifts their consciousness, which is also a really big question, because how are you defining consciousness? And that's something that uh, intrigues me as well. Um, and it makes them see the world as more connected, you know, see themselves as part of the earth, as part of the ecosystem. It drives them to be more uh, sustainable, to have more pro-social behaviors. Uh, there's some really strong quotes from astronauts about politics in that sense that, you know, they're ridiculous. If you go up there and you see the Earth from that perspective, you realize we're all living on this spaceship floating through Earth and we're killing each other on Earth. We're destroying our environment. Um, and so it was an intriguing concept to me because, uh, I mean, I would personally love to experience it myself one day, but at the same time, not many people get the chance to do that. And so my, my proposal for this PhD research that I'm doing was, so if we can use virtual reality to actually simulate this effect, can we then study how it impacts people's behaviors, potentially also by comparing it to, you know, what an astronaut experiences, because it's a very different, um, very different circumstances, you know, it's much more dynamic, also seeing the earth from space, you see like 16 sunrises per day. Uh, compared to here on earth and they're isolated there there's a lot of different factors so i do want to study this in you know lab setting for people on earth who just experienced this vr simulation but also for analog astronauts because they do have some of the same conditions where they're isolated for a long period of time so would that impact people more strongly and then once you experience this does it shift your behavior um, the way that you think about sustainability on Earth, because I do truly believe that the climate crisis, our space debris problem, all of these things are linked back to ideology. Um, it's about how you see yourself and how you see nature. Do you see yourself as part of nature or is it just, you know, it's a resource um, 
for us to use um, the same way we're looking at, you know, resources on the moon now. And I think all of these things are very closely interlinked. And for me, the overview effect was an intriguing way to kind of explore this dynamic. Yeah, I, I'm really curious what the results will be. Are you do you, are you already doing some tests? I, I what are you are you finding some connection between uh, the ability to show through virtual reality the planet and the overview effect? So not yet. Um, I am. I just started my second year of the PhD. So the first year was largely reading a lot of things, doing mm -hmm. courses, uh, trying to figure out what I want to do with the actual experiments. Um, actually, next month, I'm going to Spain for research abroad uh, to work with a neuropsychology professor who is interested also in space psychology, does work with analogs and so on. And a huge part of, you know, kind of the debate leading up to this point was, should I use existing VR simulations? Because there have been people that tried to simulate, you know, seeing the Earth from space. But what I found is that quite often it's it's always about just zooming out so you know you're starting on earth you're up in space you keep zooming out um, until you barely see the earth and i feel that that may also create some kind of disconnect if you're trying to you know cause the emotions that people would feel more linked to the earth um, i'd rather kind of zoom back in so starting from the earth perspective uh, from space and then zooming back in, looking at nature uh, in harmony and then looking at the destruction on Earth, would that potentially have a different uh, impact on the people viewing it? And so ultimately, um, right now, the plan is I'm going to develop my own VR simulation. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Uh, I'm only in Spain for five months. <laughs> and we our plan is to actually develop the simulation um, test it in the lab setting, but also test it in a space analog mission to see if that has any differences. So if people are isolated and only interacting with the same few people, if they're living in a harsh environment, does that maybe influence how they see this, um, the overview effect, let's say the simulated overview effect. Uh, and a lot of this also goes back to, you know, psychological and um, decision-making research. So how do you actually measure the impact that it had. Is it something that's instantaneous? Is it something that requires more time? Um, all of these things are different factors that go into this. And realistically, within the PhD, I won't be able to test everything. Um, but my hope is to have at least a preliminary result that shows that, yes, this can have an impact, um, because then the, the simulation itself can be fine-tuned, the conditions as well, and we can really do it more broadly. We can distribute the simulation to schools, um, to business leaders, to different people who who have the opportunity to make an impact on the future of life on Earth. Uh, so that's the, the current goal. Yeah, no, it's, it is a really interesting project which could have really big consequences uh, for how we approach climate change. And the idea that showing the planet could in itself be enough to make people realize the importance of protecting it, I think is, is a very, very interesting idea to explore. Uh, maybe as a last question, be before we wrap things up, I'd like to go back to the idea of consciousness that you brought up earlier. Um, can you tell me a bit more about that? You said you were interested in this. How does that relate to your interest in, uh, in space? 
So it actually started uh, during my master's. We were working on a team project about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And uh, my biggest interest in that question was how are we defining intelligence? Because, you know, what are we actually looking for? So right now um, in SETI, they look for biosignatures or technosignatures. Um, biosignatures being like gas emissions that they think could be contribute to life on another planet or a celestial body. And then technosignatures is the more common way for searching for intelligence because we assume that an intelligent, um, you know, extraterrestrial society would have technologies that are similar to our own. Um, and I find that to be a bit flawed personally, because it's, first of all, there's a lot of intelligence on earth other than human intelligence that we don't even recognize or acknowledge as intelligent beings. Um, and how does consciousness come into play when you're talking about intelligence? Are we looking actually for any intelligent being or are we looking for a species that has maybe a similar consciousness to our own? Um, and I was also always very interested in quantum physics, uh, ideas of, you know, quantum entanglement, the role that plays in the universe, quantum gravity. Uh, I found through my research for SETI, uh, the there's a lot of theories about how consciousness could arise at a quantum level in your brain. So basically that your the interactions that happen inside your mind or your body are what gives rise to your consciousness. Um, and so that year, uh, I remember I really wanted to explore this in the team project, but no one was on board. They were just like, this is crazy. <laughs> No one's going to take this seriously. We should just make a satellite that looks for radio signals or something. I, I forget what was actually the plan. Um, but so I, I wrote my own paper uh, about this that I presented at the IAC in 2020. And the idea was how quantum technologies can contribute to SETI and how consciousness plays a role in that. Um, and so that was also part of my, my research proposal uh, for my PhD, reading about the overview effect and how it is influ influencing our consciousness. Um, that again kind of triggered this question in my mind that what is that really? You know, what are we saying is happening in our minds when we experience something that expands our consciousness? What does it mean to expand your consciousness? Um, and this idea of, of having a planetary consciousness or a cosmic consciousness that everything, all living beings, all electrons, every single thing in the universe is somehow connected through consciousness as this fundamental part of reality. Um, and so that really intrigues me. Fundamental I'm still, even more so than reality? Are you saying consciousness is more fundamental than reality? Are you going that far? No, so actually a lot of the, the interesting readings about this is basically the same way that you would say space or time is a fundamental aspect of reality, that consciousness is on par with these things, that consciousness gives rise to our reality. Um, and I find that idea very intriguing. I'm not sure how I'm going to incorporate it into my PhD research. Uh, it seems to be something that people either love talking about or they want to stay away from completely because they're like, ah, oh, but you know, you can't test this with science. And so you should just not go there. 
Um, but that's why I'm very excited that my PhD is interdisciplinary again, because part of it is actually the philosophical aspect. So yes, I may not be able to test consciousness scientifically. Uh, we're leaving the science experiment to more psychology and, and neuroscience. But when it comes to exploring what consciousness is or how it could be influenced by the overview effect, that is a deeply philosophical question. Um, and that allows you to explore kind of new paradigms for thinking about this through the lens of the overview effect. Well, Sabat, thank you so much uh, for this conversation today. It was really interesting, very inspiring. Um, I don't have much to add other than I'm really excited to, to hear more about your PhD and what you would find out, uh, whether you'll be able to even include those perspectives on consciousness. Uh, for now, this was the third episode of the Dark Matter podcast. I look forward to seeing you next week for another episode. I'd like to thank Andy, Sean, and Tom for helping me put all of this together and uh, take care. Thank you so much. <laughs>